All right, good morning. Grateful to be together. We're going to open God's Word, so I hope you got a Bible with you. Open up to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. The name of the message here uh, this morning is Gospel Ready, Sowing, Sleeping, and Reaping. And we're going to look at this parable from Jesus in Mark 4. If you'd follow along, I'm going to start reading in verse 26. The kingdom of God is like this, Jesus said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. So this parable talks about a secret working of God after uh, we have received the seed of the gospel, the message of the gospel. And what God does is this miracle that produces a harvest of salvation. People put their faith and trust in him. People repent and believe and up comes this harvest from the ground, new life. God's spirit does it. We can't do it, but that's what God does, right? So this text, it calls us to the task of sharing the gospel while also removing the pressure that the results are up to us. So it it does double duty, right? It gives us an assignment, but it also says the weight's not on you to produce the results for this. In other words, the, the eternal destinies of the people around us who don't know Jesus at this point, that's not up to you figuring out how to, you know, how to pick the lock of their unique heart of their unique struggles and barriers to faith and doubts and unbelief and all the rest. And now it's all on you to pick the lock or else they're, uh, they're toast, right? That, that, that's not what this parable is about. It actually removes a crushing burden off of our shoulders because it says there's certain things that, oh, that only God can do. You have a role, but there's certain things. The decisive work is God's work alone. There's a divine miracle we can't create but there's a simple gospel we can share. I'll say that again. There's a divine miracle we can't create, but there's a simple gospel we can and must share. So if we're gonna be gospel ready, and that's what we're talking about here this morning, if we're gonna be gospel ready, we need to understand what we can do and equally important, what we cannot do. So let's start on that journey by thinking biblically about God and farming. So God and farming, throughout Mark chapter 4, and we don't have time to read the entire passage, but all throughout Mark chapter 4, Jesus is talking about farming. He's talking about seed and soils and sowing and reaping. That, that's an extended metaphor that runs through this entire chapter. And here's one of the big ideas if you're taking notes. Sowing in the Old Testament is a metaphor for God's work. It's a metaphor for God's work. So frequently in the Old Testament, for example, plants are people. So, for example, when the Messiah is prophesied that he's going to come, it says that a shoot will emerge from the stump of Jesse. That's the first picture that you get of of Jesus coming up out of the stump of of the Davidic dynasty. In, In other places, you have, for example, in Psalm 1, 
you have this tree that's flourishing, but that tree is a person who meditates on God's word, but the person is a tree, and the tree is always bearing fruit. And so there's this, the righteous tree that's always bearing fruit, and the unrighteous, Psalm 1 says, is like chaff that the wind drives away. So we're back in the farm. We're back in the field. There's a winnowing fork. And there's something that stays, and there's something that blows in the wind of judgment. God says through Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea that he will sow Israel, not plants, he will sow Israel in the land and she will be fruitful. Isaiah says in Isaiah 61 verse 3 that after God has planted his people, it says they would become oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. When sometimes when God talks about uh, cutting down the cedars of Lebanon in the Old Testament. It's not about actual deforestation that God is going to do in the world. It's about cutting down the proud rulers of the world that opposed his people. So people are plants, people are trees throughout the Bible. And that's a, in other words, Jesus isn't making this up in Mark chapter four. He's not creating this from scratch. He's pulling from the stock of Old Testament imagery and bringing it into this moment. So what's that mean? It means this. If you were in Jesus' first audience there in Mark chapter four and you hear him talk the way that he does and if you're steeped in the language of the Old Testament and you hear Jesus talk like this, you might arrive at a stunning conclusion that Jesus comes as the end time sower of God and Jesus scatters his words like seed. So how do we know that the sowing part of the metaphor has to do with scattering the word and speaking the word. Well, look at chapter four, verse 14. It's not a part of our text specifically, but there it is in the broader context. Mark four fourteen says, the sower sows the word. So that's Jesus unpacking. This is what I mean. This is the symbolism. The sower is not sowing actual seed. He's sowing the word, the truth of God. And then if you backed up, this will be on the screen, so you don't have to turn there. But earlier in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter one, it connects Jesus' mission to sowing the word. Here's what Jesus says. Mark 1.38. Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there. This is why I have come. So Jesus' mission is connected to him scattering and sowing seeds. And the seed is the word. And so Jesus proclaiming the kingdom. And then Jesus will involve his disciples and he says, now you go and proclaim the kingdom. So they become the sowers. But at first, what we see here is Jesus par excellence, the ultimate and decisive sower. So even when we get involved in sowing, which we'll talk about momentarily, Jesus is the ultimate one who is doing this, right? So the concept of harvest, which is right here in our passage, the concept of harvest has both the idea of, of someone's conversion, so someone putting their faith and trust in Jesus, that's the moment of harvest. That's the moment that they are harvested to the glory of God, right? The standing wheat in the fields of the Lord to his glory. But the harvest is also a reference in other passages in scripture to this big harvest, this eschatological, this end time harvest, this reaping at the end of the age where the wheat is gathered into God's barn and the weeds are thrown into the fire. And Jesus is the one who does the ultimate farming there. He's the decisive reaper, right? And so he divides between the wheat and the tares. He alone is able to do that. So throughout 
Mark 4, and that by itself, just so that I don't pass on from saying, that is obviously a, a seriously uncomfortable truth. That there is wheat and there is weeds in the world, and Jesus, when he returns, he will divide the wheat from the weeds. There will be this ultimate decisive saving and judging activity that the New Testament just calls harvest. The point is, throughout Mark chapter four, Jesus doesn't pull back from uncomfortable truths. He leans into uncomfortable truths. And what's the uncomfortable truth? The uncomfortable truth is this in Mark four. How one responds to Jesus' teaching is decisive for whether one is included or excluded from salvation. How one hears, how one responds to his word is the critical matter for salvation or judgment. Well, where do you get that, Matt? Well, you get it by just reading the entire passage. Read all of Mark chapter four later on. And one thing that you'll notice is the verb that's used more than any other word in this entire chapter is the verb akuo. It means to hear and it's used 13 times. Jesus is not gonna let you miss the point. I need you people to hear me. He says in verse three, right? The very first command out of the gate in verse three is listen up. And then after that very first parable, at the very beginning of Mark chapter four, what does he say after the first parable? He says in verse nine, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. And then in Mark four, if you got your Bible open still, look at verse 20. Jesus says the good soil is marked by what? Those like seeds sown on good ground, hear. That's decisive. They hear the word, they welcome the word, and they produce fruit. That's Jesus' way of saying, in the midst of all of this parable and imagery of farming, do not miss the point. Everybody who's in the sound of my voice, you need to turn your ears on if you want to live. You need to hear. What does Paul say? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. What is the biggest central command in the entire Old Testament? It's called the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter six. And the very first words are, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hear. Now the reality in Mark chapter four, there is a pain point in Mark four particularly in verse 10 through 12, right? Where some people, Jesus says, I speak in parables and, and in speaking in parables, some people are gonna be further hardened by my teaching. So it's like, you, you've heard the old adage that the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. And Jesus says the parables are like that. The parables, the one thing you're never gonna do with a parable is yawn. You're gonna move. You're either gonna move toward me or you're gonna move further away from me. It's gonna have that moving effect. And, and, and that's exactly what we saw. So the backdrop against which Mark four is, is Mark chapter three. And what happens in Mark chapter three? Every time Jesus opens his mouth, his opponents hate him a little bit more. <laughs> They're moving further and further away because his teaching is offensive to them. Mark chapter three, verse six, they plot to kill him. Mark chapter three, verse 22, they declare that his power is sourced in the demonic. And so there is, we're gonna to come to this, there is an application for our evangelistic efforts that we can legitimately gain from Mark chapter four. That's gonna be our particular focus this morning. But I think we'd be careless to not stop and remind ourselves and 
so I can remind you as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is nothing more important for you as a Christian than to be careful how you hear the word of God. Cultivating a responsive heart, there is nothing more important. And we get illustrations both on the negative side and the positive side. For example, the Pharisees say to Jesus in John chapter 10, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And you know what Jesus says? I already told you and you won't listen. It's like I'm talking to a wall. I've said it before. How many ways do you want me to say it? I've proved it with my actions and yet you don't see You don't see the significance of the signs and the wonders that I've done. It's like you're putting something over your eyes. You refuse to listen and you refuse to see. Friend, here this morning, are you responsive to God's word? Are you responsive to his commands? Do you lean in to obey every word that he says as if you're hanging on it for dear life? That should be the posture of faith. That's how you grow. That's how you mature. So there's this negative example in the Pharisees who said, tell us plainly. And he says, I already did and you weren't listening. And then there's positive examples. For example, in the Old Testament, there's this classic moment, a wonderful moment where uh, Eli, the aged prophet, he's, he's toward the end of his life and there's a young boy named Samuel. And Samuel comes running into Eli and he says, you called me. And Eli says, I, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And the boy runs back to bed. And then he hears a voice and he comes running in. He says, you, you called me, what, what do you need? And he said, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And when Samuel comes out a third time, Eli realizes God's talking to this kid. God is calling this boy. He's gonna be a prophet. And so he says, hey, listen, son, next time you hear God speak, here's what you need to say. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's how it all starts. When God speaks, son, you listen. So moving on, what's implied in our passage and explicit later in scripture is this. As the father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. What's that mean? We're the farmers now. Jesus showed us how. Then he sends his own disciples out to do the same thing. In Matthew chapter nine, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. In other words, he's clearly implying there are going to be more people out here in the fields than just me. Jesus isn't the one who's the only one doing the sowing and the only one doing the reaping. He's sending his people, his disciples out into the fields. What did Paul say to the church at Corinth? He said, I planted you and then Apollos watered you, but God's the one who made the field grow. Farming metaphors all over the place, right? That, that's the big picture. But this parable has something to say to us, I think, to ready us for year two. That's our emphasis, right? Our emphasis this year is on us living as faithful gospel witnesses in the ordinary rhythms of our daily life. That's what we've been talking about all of year two. So, Brook Hills, gospel readiness in Mark chapter four, and we'll spend the bulk of our time here. Gospel readiness in Mark 4. Number one, embrace your calling as a sower. Embrace your calling as a sower. Look at uh, verse 26 with me. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. So the big idea here is sow generously. 
so generously. Man is just scattering seed on the ground, right? So the picture is of a farmer scattering seed on the ground. So these parables are, are meant for us to climb inside. They're meant to engage the imagination of the listener. They're not propositional statements. It's engaging your imagination. So you're supposed to climb in. Now you're the farmer, all right? So you're here. You're cast in the role of the farmer, and you're walking around in a field, and you have a bag slung over your shoulder, and inside that bag is seed. And so here's a field. You've got a bag on your shoulder, and it's filled with seed. And the picture is you're supposed to take a fistful of that seed, walk into that field, and start slinging it in every direction. You sling it until the bag is empty. And then you go get more bag of seed tomorrow and you go out and you sling it again. That's the picture. So, so what's sowing signify? So that this isn't lost in metaphor. Sowing signifies speaking the word of God to another person. Again, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. So that's what sowing signifies is speaking the gospel and speaking God's word to another person. What does sowing look like? Well, it can look a thousand different ways. You walking into the field this week with a bag slung over your shoulder and a fistful of seed can look like you in a one-on-one conversation with a friend who doesn't know Jesus and y'all are having coffee and you share your testimony and you pepper in truths about who God is and what it means to follow him. It could look like you if you're a mother telling your child about who Jesus is at night. So the field that you're walking is right there in your house. The field is upstairs and you got a bag full of seed, and tonight you're gonna sow some. That, that, that counts as well. It could look like you inviting some non-believing friends of yours to, to your house to join you for a meal, and maybe join you and others for a meal, followed by a brief study of the Bible, where you talk about the Bible, or you answer questions, or you have deep dive conversations about spiritual things. You can scatter the seed in many different places. The point is, we're supposed to be scattering it in all the places. Every place that we go, we're supposed to be throwing seed. The point of this series is to say, let's do it more than we've ever done it before. New Testament scholar David Garland says, this passage forces us to reflect on our goals and methods in proclaiming the gospel. And he goes on to talk about the use of parables and how parables aren't meant to convey just one idea, but that they carry his words, his phrases, a constellation of imagery that we're supposed to mull over the implications of all of these different images that are packed into the parable. For example, the sower in the parable doesn't prejudge the soil, doesn't do market testing on his audience to see, okay, what kind of seed is going to work for this particular audience. He doesn't decide in advance whether the soil has potential or not. The point is much more simple than that, right? God has given me the seed. I have a job. Throw this stuff. He determines what happens under the ground. He works the miracle. I throw this stuff. I throw the seed. That's my job. Here, here's another implication of that. The farmer doesn't, if you climb into the imagery, the farmer doesn't throw one seed here. And, oh, that's a great spot. I'll throw one seed there. No, the farmer's just grabbing fistfuls. He's sowing liberally. He's sowing generously. He's scattering it as far and wide as he possibly can. Here's the thing I wish was true of me. And this is a part of what makes it complicated for me to... Uh, to lead this particular series and year two. 
is um, I'm super convicted by everything that I've been teaching you. (laughs) This has not been an area of strength in my life. This has not been an area where there's been tons of intentionality on a weekly basis for me to get out there and have conversations with people who haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. Mostly, I hang around with you guys (laughs) and talk about the Lord with you, people who are already in the faith. I I wish this was true of me, that that it would be an odd week for me to go through that entire week without telling somebody about Jesus, people who aren't following him yet. Whether they are people who hold other faith commitments, people of no faith commitments, people with doubts, people with previous faith commitments who maybe used to consider themselves to be Christians. I would just... My aim and my goal and my prayer is, God, may it be an odd week for me to go through the entire week and not say something to people who haven't yet followed Jesus. I love Charles Spurgeon. He says, I have heard it said of Captain Cook, the celebrated explorer, that wherever he landed, in whatever part of the earth it might be, he took with him a little packet of English seeds. So he was British. He took with him a little packet of English seeds and he was observed to scatter them in suitable places. He would leave the boat and wander up from the shore. He said nothing to anybody, but quietly scattered English seeds wherever he went so that he belted the world with the flowers and herbs of his native land. And Spurgeon goes on masterfully to unpack that metaphor and say, you have seeds from your native land, Zion. And he said, scatter those seeds everywhere your foot shall tread so that this world might be belted with the seeds of Zion, the harvest of Zion. That's why it's always dangerous to read Spurgeon's sermons the night before you preach that sermon because it's like, there's a way better sermon than the one I'm about to preach. I should just get up there and read this one, right? So I'm reading Spurgeon last night on Mark 4. I'm like, I'm just gonna read this one. Uh, Spurgeon went on to write, imitate him wherever you go, carry the heavenly seeds and sow them everywhere your feet shall tread. Second, embrace the nature of the work. Embrace the nature of the work. Verse 26 and 27, a man scatters seed on the ground. Notice, he sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. So there's a realism in Mark 4's parables of sower and soil and seed that goes in a number of different directions. Number one, don't expect every seed sown will yield fruit. The point isn't to be discouraged or defeatist about that. The the point is, don't be discouraged if it takes time for life to spring up. If it doesn't happen the first time you sowed in that particular field, don't be discouraged if some conversations that you have about the Lord go badly. And maybe they go badly for reasons on your side, right? I don't know if you've ever been in an evangelistic moment where if you think about it as a video of you casting seed, it looked like you were casting seed with your opposite hand. You know, it's like, that was the worst throw I've ever had (laughs) in my life. I mean, it's like, I know the gospel. How did I butcher this so badly today, right? So the fail can sometimes feel like it was on our side. On the other hand, there might be moments where you walk away from a conversation, a spiritual conversation with somebody and say, Man, I, I felt like it was clear and it, it seemed compelling and it was, it was true and I got it out there, but they weren't picking up what I was putting down. I mean, they just didn't seem interested. They wanted to move on from the conversation. In uh, C.S. Lewis's book, 
the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe were introduced to the Pevensey children, and they're sent to this old house um, to wait out the war. And early in the book, you meet one of the Pevensey children's name is Lucy, and they're playing hide-and-seek in the house, and Lucy goes and hides in this wardrobe, and she ends up, there's no back on the wardrobe, and she turns around and walks into this parallel world called Narnia, and it's snowing in there, and there are beavers that talk, and there's all kinds of wild things that are going on in that parallel universe, and she's there in Narnia for hours, spends time with Mr. Tumnus and all these things that go on, and then she comes back, having lost track of time, and she, she's thinking, they're probably sending out search parties. Probably everybody's worried about me. So she comes and she finds her brothers and sisters and siblings. And she says, I'm back. And she's like, y'all were probably looking for me everywhere. Didn't you miss me? I've been gone for hours. And they said, no, the game is still in progress. You, I mean, we just counted to 10. And, and then even though she's noble and she's trustworthy, you see that she has this problem of trying to convince her siblings that there's such a thing as Narnia. And she does it with such passion and despite all this honesty and all this conviction, all of her siblings, all that her siblings could see was an ordinary wardrobe. No snow, no trees, no tumness, no talking beavers, no Narnia. And they even tested it out by going into the wardrobe. They said, okay, we'll entertain you for just a second. And they walk to the back of the wardrobe and they knock on the wooden back and they say, nice try. And you ever had moments where evangelism feels like that? It's like, there's this place and it's snowing and it's Narnia and there are talking animals, right? <laughs> and they're not buying it. And they walk to the back of the wardrobe and they knock and they're like, I'm just not, I'm not feeling it. Like the Pevensey children, sometimes it just takes time. So the next point is don't re-engineer the seed. Again, climbing into the metaphor and the symbolism that Jesus is using here, the farmer throws the seed. He's a farmer, not a scientist. He doesn't create the seed, he throws the seed. That's his job, right? There are prosperity gospel churches, there are prosperity gospel mission movements that generate exciting, explosive numbers, but on closer inspection, they've re-engineered the seed. They think about Black Friday, which is more relevant for some than it is for others. Some of us will be sleeping, some of you will not be sleeping. We'll think about Black Friday, how, how do they get you to give up the sleep you almost always have at that particular time of the night or that particular time of the morning? Why are there so many people that flock to stores when they should be sleeping? The genius of Black Friday in four words is cut prices, boost sales. But what works on Black Friday is devastatingly bad for mission. Because yes, more people will buy but they're buying a gospel where they can get heaven and keep their gods. Where they can get a savior and we'll discuss lordship later maybe. We'll talk about faith, but we'll talk about repentance later maybe. Cut prices, boost sales, works for Black Friday, but it has a downside of giving false assurance to people who said yes to a Christ who is less than Lord and said yes to a Christ who asserts his rule over less than everything. 
And now we're talking about biblical gospel proclamation. We talked about gospel clarity a couple weeks back. Identity, mission, call, getting there because that's super important. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? What does it mean to follow Jesus? These are terms that need clarifying up front. It's not to be decided later on. Cost is included up front. It's not in the small print at the bottom. It's clarified up front. Jesus lets people walk. He says to the rich young ruler, so do you want to serve God or do you want to serve your money? It's one way or the other. And he sees brake lights headed out. And he doesn't stop the guy. Don't re-engineer the seed. Next, sow with faith and pray for harvest. So the farmer goes to sow and then what does the text say? He comes back in and he goes to sleep. So there's a time to sow and there's a time to sleep. Engage the imagery. Now, so what I'm talking about sowing with faith is if you engage the imagery, the farmer doesn't go to sleep thinking there's nothing going to grow out there in that field. If he thinks nothing's going to grow out in the field, he's in the wrong line of work. Every year he sees something grow out in that field. I'm throwing enough seed for something to grow out in that field. I love what Spurgeon says here again. I fear that many Christians work without faith. If you have a garden or field, you would be surprised and grieved if nothing at all grew. But many Christian people seem quite content to work on and on, and they never reckon upon results so much as to look for it expectantly. A lack of expectation has been a great cause of failure in God's work. What's Spurgeon driving at? He's he's driving at this idea. Think about it this way. If you expect a harvest, you'll sow more seed. And if you expect nothing, why throw seeds? (laughs) This this stuff literally does nothing. These are sugar pills. This literally does nothing out in any field. So it ends up arguing us into unbelief. So what happens when God works the miracle... We've sowed the seed and life springs up. Look at verse 28. The soil produces a crop, automote. It's it's the Greek word meaning automatically, of itself. It's not caused by anything in the sower. It's something else that's happening there in the ground. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. And as soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. So you fast forward, you talk about reaping, you talk about harvest, and Jesus in John chapter four, he's just revealed himself to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and she concludes, it's all true. You're the Messiah, stay here. And she runs back to her village and she says, everybody needs to come with me. Come see a man. That's her word. And they find the transformation so obvious in her life that they literally come following her out of the city, out to this well. She runs out of the village and beckons them to come and she brings them out. And as she brings her entire town, all her neighbors with her to meet Jesus, Jesus is standing there with his disciples at the well. And he says to his disciples, as the people come out, he says this, hey boys, don't say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. And he says, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for, so start swinging sickles because all these people are ready. And you keep reading the text, and they are. They say, no longer, they say to Jesus, no longer do we believe what she said about you because of what she said. 
We believe because we see it. There's a time for sowing. There's a time for weeping, uh, reaping. And Jesus says, when life begins working, isn't this cool, this, this metaphor, the way he unpacks it. When life begins working, uh, you see it often in stages. There's the blade, he says, and then the head, and then the full head on the, uh, the grain on the head, and then the crop is ready. In other words, this must mean that there are people who have heard the gospel and stuff is going on in their interior world. Stuff is going on inside them. A work of God has begun. They're thinking about it. They're mulling it over. They're, they're feeling the, the early goings of conviction of sin, maybe fear of hell, maybe longing for heaven, warming up to the word of God. They're thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about his compelling statements. They're thinking about his upside down kingdom. They're thinking about his death on the cross and his suffering. They're thinking about his resurrection and his new life, what the old theologians called secret inducements and persuasions by which God is dismantling their resistance to the gospel. And all that's happening underground. You don't control that. You sow the seed and under the ground, God is dismantling their resistances to the gospel by secret inducements and persuasions. You think about an example of this in the book of Acts. Saul of Tarsus, hardened religious man who hated the gospel hated the way of Jesus, and I don't think he could shake what he saw the day Stephen was stoned to death. Something in that moment rocked him. Something of Stephen's shining face, said he had the face of an angel. Stones are flying, and he looks into heaven, and his face lights up with glory. Something about Stephen offering forgiveness and praying forgiveness on the ones throwing the stones that will kill him momentarily. Something about Stephen's words about the temple, Stephen's words about the Messiah. The last thing Stephen did with his dying breath was send his hand into the seed bag and chuck gospel seed as far as he could. And Stephen's compelling death and Stephen's stunning words, if you will, put a ticking time bomb in the mind of Saul that detonated on the road to Damascus. There's patience. God works after the seed has been sown. And then there's a time to harvest. What, what's time to harvest? How does that translate into our world, your world as a, a witness of the gospel? It means that there might be times where you can discern and you can even say to the friend who's standing in front of you, bro, you're right there. Isn't it time? Hey, isn't it time to follow Jesus? Why not now? How about, is there anything that you want to hold back from God or are you ready to, to dive all the way into the life with Jesus? And then what's the person say? Maybe the person says yes and you say, okay, guess what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How about we do that? How about we call on the name of the Lord? You start. Call on his, that's, that's sickle. That's reaping time. That's harvest time. And then once they're reaped, now what? Baptism. Let's head into the waters. It's time to openly, publicly declare who you belong to, right? And then biblical community, church membership, gathered worship, loving Jesus, growing in Jesus, making disciples of Jesus. In John chapter five, Jesus says this, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Here's a question for us. We talk about live sent. Don't you want to be there sometime this year where somebody passes from death to life? 
and you were there. Literally, it happened right there at the table and you saw them cross over from used to be dead and now they're alive. And you get the privilege of all privileges of swinging the sickle and saying, it's time to harvest. Let's go. There's a time for sowing and reaping and sleeping. So farmers sow in a field, but farmers don't live in a field. And I have this on good authority because my wife's dad, Mr. Pete, has been a farmer all his life. He farmed in the fields with his father when he was a boy. And then he became a tenant farmer in those same exact fields, sugarcane fields of South Louisiana, all the way until he retired. And I had the joy of getting to work a couple of grindings, which is harvest season in South Louisiana with him. And I saw it day after day. He works in the field and then he comes in and he rests. And what's resting look like for Mr. Pete, an actual farmer? It means he comes inside, he takes his boots off, he puts his tennis shoes on and he goes for a walk. And then he cooks with his wife. And he never misses a single LSU baseball game. And he sleeps. There's a time for both the farmer and the land to rest. So you, you have rest, you think about that. That's your ordinary life. That's the weight of their eternity doesn't depend on you not resting. I think this is particularly needed for parents because this, the fields in which you sow are your home address. So it's very blurry when you leave the field and when you rest and it's like, I live in the field. This is the field. I wake up here, I go to sleep here, I eat here. Like this is where I do all my work. And so what you end up doing is just plowing and sowing all day, all the time. And it's like, this kid is gonna get it. I promise you, she is gonna get it. She's resistant, but by the end, give me 30 minutes, right? Or give me, give me a month or whatever it's gonna be. And maybe, maybe they come to faith, praise God. They come to faith early and you're like, hey, reaping, it's time. Water baptism. They go down into the waters of baptism and then you keep watching their faith and next thing you know, you're doubting whether or not they've actually believed. And you're like, you know, their sins grew up, their struggles grew up, their problems grew up, they got a little bit bigger, got a little bit more complicated and now I'm not sure he loves God. I'm not sure she loves God, right? If salvation makes people likable, I'm not sure this kid is saved. <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. Y'all don't want to be real with me, but I'm just keeping it real, right? And what are you going to, if that's what happens, what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to give that land no rest. <laughs> You're going to want to plow that field morning until night, right? Here's something so freeing about the rhythms of a farmer. The farmer knows I have times to sow, but I can't create life. So what's the farmer do? He doesn't scatter and then constantly whisper, come on, come on, come on seed, Right? He, he sows seed and then he takes the bag off his shoulder and he hangs it up and he takes a shower and he comes out and he eats dinner with his family. <laughs> Guy who scatters seed in chapter four, verse 27, goes to bed. In other words, go about your business, your everyday life, your ordinary life. Sometimes the harvest is delayed. I know a pastor uh, named Steve, who shares his family story and he talks about his grandfather. He says, my grandfather was the godliest, most compelling Christian I've ever known. And he said, and he raised three kids who grew up as adults and there was a long season of their adulthood that they did not believe 
the gospel that he taught them. And he said eventually his, uh, his aunt, Steve's aunt, came to faith in Jesus. Then Steve led his dad to faith in Jesus. And then there was Uncle Fred. And Uncle Fred did not believe. And Uncle Fred's life was a wreck. He had addiction issues and he would come and borrow money from family members and lie. And then he would disappear for a long period of time. Then he would come back to borrow more money and hit self-destruct for a long period of time. That was the recurring cycle of Uncle Fred. And Fred went off the radar for a long time extra long time, and Steve said, we didn't even know if Uncle Fred was alive. And during Uncle Fred's disappearance on this particular occasion, uh, the grandfather died. And Steve said, I went to my grandpa's bedside, and I said, Grandpa, how can I pray for you? And he said, there was a sense of, of faith and a sense of joy. Even on his deathbed, he quoted 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And it was his last prayer of dependence and prayer expression of hope. And years, years later, Steve got a letter and found out that Uncle Fred, during his disappearance, went to a canyon in Arizona and he sat on the edge of that canyon intending to jump. And Steve described it this way. Guilt, shame, a trail of shattered lives pressed upon him so hard he began to sob uncontrollably. He resolved his life wasn't worth living, but as he sat there, the God of mercy, of hope, Jesus the Savior, began to work. Fred's letter said, I began to reflect back over things that my father taught me early on but that I had rejected. And instead of jumping, he began to cry out, Jesus, if you're real, please forgive me. Please forgive me. He began to confess everything he ever did. And then he said, he began to sing. He began to cry new tears. He remembered what his father told him over and over about being reconciled to a God who is merciful and who forgives sins and then Steve goes on to talk about the reaping of salvation and new life that happened in his Uncle Fred's life and resulted in years of following Jesus since that day. Sometimes the seed goes into the ground and it takes a long, long time for it to spring up to new life. So don't lose heart. Don't grow weary in sowing. I heard a pastor just this past week who said there were so many people in his church family that loved people in their lives and those people were rejecting the truth of the gospel. And he said that they created a list and he said that the list was held in the tightest possible confidence and it was given to one group of people, a group of intercessory prayer people. And that list was held by them and they would just come to the church and they would just pray over this list. And guess what they called the list? The most wanted list. the most wanted list. And he said, amazingly, miraculously, in the six to eight months that followed prayer for the most wanted list, a dozen or so people from that list came to faith in Jesus. (laughs) Maybe that's your writing prompt this week in your journal. My most wanted list includes dot, dot, dot. And maybe in weeks to come, next to each one of those names, the Lord leads you as you read through his word. He leads you to attach scripture verses that you want to pray for people on your most wanted list. 
So church, the Lord intends to use us. We don't create life, but we have a role. Do this. Cast seeds and then pray.